coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk about the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. And then we're joined by Tim Muehlhoff, author of the book Winsome Conviction. You're listening to The Common Game. Hey friends, happy Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is off for this week, enjoying a much-deserved vacation with his family. He'll be back next Monday. Uh, and so I am flying solo this week, but having be, getting joined by all sorts of people. In fact, just later in a couple of minutes here, later this hour, we're going to be joined by Tim Muehlhoff, author of Winsome Conviction. I'm super excited for this conversation about a book uh, and a series of books that couldn't be more important to what we're dealing with in our culture and in our church culture right now. Uh, and then in the second hour, uh, the president of my alma mater, Wheaton College, Dr. Philip Riken, is going to join us for a couple segments and excited for that. So as I said, flying solo, but not really. Lots of great guests throughout the course of this week while Ian is away. We hope that you had a great weekend, a long weekend. We took yesterday off as well. Uh, and enjoy just the break with our kids. And now today, back at it, it's just, again, a beautiful fall day. I know it's going to get cold here soon, I'm guessing, but man, we're going to enjoy this while we can. So uh, we're glad that you're with us. If you've missed anything from last week or today's show as we get going, you can find it on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, online at 1160hope.com. Uh, and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, just subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, you can go ahead and, as I said, all these interviews we're doing, you can find them if you missed them and uh, just listen to old shows. And then when you disagree with us, let us know. And uh, we're glad to have you joining us again, as we said on this beautiful Tuesday. Feels like a Monday, so I might say that a couple times, but it's a it's a gorgeous Tuesday afternoon. Well, a couple of things from over the last few days that I wanted to jump into. First, yesterday began... Uh, the nomination hearings, the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Bryant to be uh, the next Supreme Court justice replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A couple things stood out to me. I didn't watch much of it live, but saw uh, kind of the highlights. Uh, one, Amy Coney Barrett's a really impressive person <laughs> just uh, in in her demeanor and her answers. I found myself um, really ag- not just agreeing with her, but just impressed by her. Uh, again, in some ways, if you listen to the pundits, these confirmation hearings really aren't going to matter much unless she says something crazy. Uh, it's going to end up a party vote, which is sad, but emblematic of who we are as a people right now, as a political people right now, uh, that she probably, maybe this won't end up being the case, but she likely will not get a no vote from a Republican and she likely will not get a yes vote from a Democrat. But if that ends up being the case, Amy Coney Barrett will be the next Supreme Court nominee, uh, next Supreme Court justice. And so it is interesting to watch these hearings uh, where she <clears throat> there. The Democratic uh, senators are at least pushing her on abortion, on Affordable Care Act and uh, the election itself. And she's saying, listen, I can't kind of give an a uh, an idea of which way I might go. And people are kind of ripping her for that. But that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what they uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself did in her confirmation hearings. That's what each of these, because uh, you don't want a justice who's going to say, well, I already know exactly what I'm going to rule for all abortion cases. I already know exactly what I'm going to rule uh, for the Affordable Care Act. These have to be cases that are argued and tried. So anyway, 
that is the major news right now. Also, President Trump back out on the campaign trail. We are, but what are we, three weeks out right now? Three weeks? Am I, is my math correct there? We're three weeks out from the election. And uh, that's crazy. So that is all coming to a head. Kind of in the Christian world, two articles I found interesting. One uh, was this one out of Christianity Today, dealt with Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Capitol Hill Baptist Church is in downtown Washington, D.C., led by a well-known pastor by the name of Mark Dever. If you've ever heard of an organization called Nine Marks, that comes out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, in Washington, D.C. And Capitol Hill Baptist uh, has been... Uh, they filed suit to be able to meet again, but people have been commenting about how the way they've gone about it is very different than, say, John MacArthur uh, out in California. And Mark Dever and Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, they've gone about it just saying they're interesting. You see, they're kind of a little bit more of an old school church who said, you know, from the beginning of this, we are not going online. And so for a while, they just didn't meet or they met in different ways. Then they've been trying to meet outside uh, in Virginia because Washington, D.C. wasn't allowed them. So let me read from you. Uh, Kate Shellnut, who's been on our show before, wrote at Christianity Today. She wrote, Capitol Hill Baptist Church can return to gathering in Washington, D.C. for the first time since coronavirus restrictions were put in place thanks to a recent court decision. On Friday, the U.S. Court for the District of Columbia granted the church a preliminary injunction, allowing it to resume meeting outdoors, socially distanced, and in crowds over 100 during the pandemic. Capitol Hill Baptist had filed a lawsuit last month after the D.C. mayor's office declined to offer the congregation an exemption to public health restrictions. The church argued that city policy violated its First Amendment rights. The court decided that online alternatives to corporate worship were not sufficient to ensure free exercise of religion in a case where the church upheld a sincere belief in gathering together. Isn't that an interesting line? free exercise of religion in a case where the church upheld a sincere belief in gathering together. Led by Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist upholds a belief in the church as a single assembly and has deliberately avoided multi-site, multi-service, or online worship as a result. The mayor of D.C. has repeatedly told churches that they could continue to meet virtually. So here's what's interesting about Capitol Hill Baptist. Uh, They're big, but they only do one service. They do not do multiple sites. And they do not do online worship. They believe that it is their church is to all be gathered under one roof at one time. Uh, and so we read this. It says the substantial burden inquiry asks whether the government has substantially burdened religious exercise, not whether the church is able to engage in other forms of religious exercise, wrote J- uh, Judge Trevor McFadden. The district may think that its proposed alternatives are sensible substitutes. And for many churches, they may be. But it's not for the district to say that the church's religious belief about the need to meet together as one corporal body are mistaken or insubstantial. So since June, Capitol Hill Baptist has met in a field adjacent to a fellow Baptist church in Virginia. As a result of the injunction, the church is making plans to move to outdoor venues in the district where a majority of its members live. One of the pastors said this. A church is not a building that can be opened or closed. A church is not an event to be watched. A church is a community that gathers regularly. And we are thankful that such communities are once again being treated fairly by the government. And so that's uh, kind of the story behind it here. Uh, And the judge even referenced Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, when the judge wrote, it is for the church, not the district, to define for itself the meaning of, quote, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. 
Uh, and so all of this I found really interesting because Ian and I have been talking many times about the various stories out there of uh, churches suing churches, bringing suits in order to meet again. But I find this Capitol Hill Baptist one just a little bit different and more nuanced uh, because A, they were planning to abide by whatever the court said. So they were kind of putting themselves out there. But B, uh, they take a different stance that says we are not going to go online. I mean, just picture that over the last six months. They said we're not going online. Uh, we're not doing multiple services, multi-site, but instead, this is how we believe the church is to be formed. So they could start meeting. I don't know what's going to happen once it turns cold in Washington, D.C., which is going to happen here soon. But for now, they can meet outside. So anyway, you can find that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know what you think. No time to get to the other article I had, but Gordon College, Houghton College, and Seattle Pacific, three big Christian colleges, are cutting tuition to make Christian education more accessible. We'll put that up on our Facebook page too. Just an interesting article about some of the realities of colleges right now and what's going on. So anyway, glad to have you with us here. It's a Tuesday, beautiful day here in the Chicagoland area. Coming up next, we're going to be joined by Tim Muehlhoff, one of the authors of Winsome Conviction. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. So Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out this week enjoying a vacation. We're looking forward to having Ian back next week. But while he's out of town, uh, we're trying to get on as many uh, church leaders and authors as we can. And with that in mind, we are thrilled uh, to be joined by Tim Muehlhoff. Uh, Tim has written many books, including uh, winsome conviction, disagreeing without dividing the church, uh, and uh, all sorts of books that play perfectly into a lot of things we've been talking about around election season. So anyway, Tim, thanks so much for joining us all the way from Biola University out in California. Yeah, it's great to be here, Brian. Uh, love your show and glad to be a part of it during this crazy election season. It really is. Well, before we jump into this, Tim, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience, uh, however you see fit? Yeah, I'm a professor of communication at Biola. Uh, I teach classes on conflict resolution, a class on evangelism, a class on marriage. I like to remind my wife that my PhD is in marital communication. So, <laughs> so uh, when we have a disagreement, I like to say, I'm sorry, where did you get your PhD from? Um, How does that go for you? <laughs> oh, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. But, uh, so, and I'm now the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project, a five-year project Viola has started to address incivility in our country. Oh, that's awesome. And I should mention, Tim co-wrote this book with Rick Langer. And uh, let's just dive right in, because as we've touched on here a couple of times, uh, midst of the election season, something Ian and I as pastors have talked about is just um, how uh, sad it makes us as pastors to see the disagreements going on in our church over elections, over COVID, over masks or whatever else. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit before we get into how we as Christians could disagree well? What is the danger for the church uh, and for our witness when we disagree poorly within the church? Well, uh, the danger is that we come across like anybody else. And Americans are sick and tired of incivility. There's a group called the Civility Project. Mm -hmm. For the last 20 years, they've done a survey and their 2019 results just came out. And so, Brian, in a time when Americans can't agree on anything, 98% of Americans agree that incivility is threatening the fabric of our country. Hmm. 68 agree 
that we're at crisis levels and 48% of Americans say, I don't feel safe sharing my viewpoints publicly. Wow. So I think there's a groundswell. There's a groundswell today. We're watching the first debate. Americans left and right center said this, we're tired of this. Mm -hmm. This is, I couldn't watch this debate. So if the church doesn't do it differently, then they look at the church and say, and you guys are just like everybody else. You you do yeah. the argument culture just like everybody else. Yeah. How do we, uh, you've been studying this. So culturally, not even just the church, but culturally, how do we get to this point? We haven't always been like this lack of civility, or maybe we have. Um, I don't know if it's as simple as social media and cable news. What What do you think are the reasons, the drivers as to why we are generally uncivil or less civil now? Well, I do think social media has had a big part of it. Uh, the Atlantic just produced a really good article that uh, the internet is for, uh, promoting tribalism. Mm-hmm. And by that, we mean groupthink. Groupthink was, remember Janice in the 60s came up with this idea that if you're just immersed in one group, and that's where you get all your information from, then you start to harbor negative stereotypes towards people outside of your group and loyalty to your group is the most important quality. So no thoughts ever get challenged. No, none of your convictions ever get challenged. And I think the church can be a breeding ground for this, right? Yeah. We, we get together. We all agree. And then we add this one little word on it, biblical, hmm. right? My view isn't just my view, but it's the biblical view. And then you get groupthink and an intolerance towards people who disagree with us, both Christians and non-Christians. I thought one of the fascinating things from your book, one of the takeaways from Winsome Conviction was uh, that this kind of this threat, uh, not just now, but way back in the New Testament church, that quarreling and and divisiveness was an issue way back then. This isn't something new. Could you talk about that a little bit? Boy, Brian, that's always been the DNA of the church, right? (laughs) You know, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, you know, I want you to worship. But then how many verses later, he says, I hear there's quarrels among you. And again, he's having to deal with Jewish and and, um, Gentile believers coming together. So feasts, uh, food becomes a huge potential dividing point with this new church. So Paul says, listen, there are confessional beliefs that we all believe, right? Jesus is Lord. He's the only way to get to God. He rose from the dead. He lived a sinless life. But then you have disputable matters where, where good Christians can disagree about food. I think today he would say good Christians can disagree about politics, about how we deal with the race issue. But Brian, we're losing the ability as Christians to talk to each other and to talk to people outside the Christian community. And if we're going to be ambassadors for Christ, what Paul talks about in chapter five of Second Corinthians, then we had better learn how to talk in today's argument culture and what Peter says, how to give a blessing for an insult. Oh, absolutely. This is this is really good. Here's my question. Uh, often you'll hear people say things like, hey, we've got to stand up for the truth, like even if even if we got to fight it out or be, whatever. How do you discern? How would you help people discern what are those core things that are worth fighting for? And what are those things that, that we can agree to disagree on? So let me modify your question just a little Go bit. Go for it. Go for it. Um, So I'm not going to buy the book if you want to know about the issues that divide us. But here's the point I want to make. I don't care what the issue is Mm. inside or outside the church. We know what the relational level should look like. So communication is broken up into the content. We can call that our convictions, our worldview, our doctrine. 
But the relational is the amount of respect between two individuals, the amount of compassion, the amount of perspective taking. So Peter says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Hmm. Paul says, speak the truth, do it with love. So I, it, it almost is irrelevant to me, Brian, what the issue is that's separating us. Hmm. The scriptures have already mandated how you should act towards each other. If you can't speak the truth in love, then you're not ready to speak truth, right? If, yeah. if it's not with gentleness and respect, you need to be quiet. Hmm. And and you don't get a free pass on social media. It's like it's like <laughs> social media isn't this okay. That's the free zone. You get uh -huh. to act like any any way that you want to. So Brian, we can get to the issues, but whatever the issue is, Paul's going to say, "I want this to be done in love." Remember in Galatians six one, he says, "Even if a brother is caught in a trespass, even if he's dead to rights wrong, you who are spiritual restore such a one mm -hmm. in a spirit of gentleness." Mm. That's what we're missing today. We're, if it's theological, political, immigration, race, Black Lives Matter, it doesn't matter the topic, Paul's saying. You have to do it in a certain way. Oh, that's so good. I'm, we're talking to Tim Muehlhoff right now, uh, co-author of the book Winsome Persuasion, which was the 2018 winner of the Christianity Today Book of the Year Awards. And you have since written uh, some other books. Uh, one called Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. Wasn't there, you just were telling me all fair, one more it has just come out or is about to come out? What is the newest one that's coming out? It's going to come out December, uh, first week of December. It's called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And uh, for the next session, I'll give you a, re listeners a code. Oh, nice. In the varsity came up with is 30% off and free shipping. Oh, perfect. Well, that's uh, that's reason enough to stay around, my friends. Tim Muehlhoff, <laughs> he is going to continue to join us to, to keep discussing this, what I think is an essential topic and an opportunity for the church to either have a black eye or to make a big difference in our world right now. Tim Muehlhoff is going to uh, continue joining us here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out right now and uh, out on vacation, hopefully having a good break. But we are joined still by Tim Muehlhoff. Tim is the author of the 2018 winner of the Christianity Today Book of the Year Awards, that book being Winsome Persuasion. Also the author of Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. And uh, Tim, I, I was telling you off air that my co-host, Ian, uh, he is going to be extremely disappointed, A, because he loves this topic, but B, you guys are from the same area. You're both long-suffering Detroit Lion fans. You guys could have talked about that for an entire segment. He's going to be oh. hurt and missing out on this. <laughs> oh, misery loves company. You know, when you, meet, uh, when you meet parents of teenagers, you just look at each other and you just have that look. Yes. When you're from Detroit and you love sports, you just look and you just shake your head. Yep. You just go, oh, I know what you mean. So uh, we'll, we'll have to give you a hard time that he missed this one. Well, Tim, before the break, uh, we're talking about about uh, basically how can we disagree within the church without dividing the church, without being disagreeable? And this is something we talk about here on the show all the time. And people might be like, ah, it's not that big a deal. But in reality, you and I were just talking. You said this is actually like a referendum for the church. Like this is kind of a defining moment. Could you talk about that a little bit? If you go to First Peter, Peter, it's a traveling letter. So he's preparing the early church for persecution. Uh, many people date First Peter before Nero's persecution. Wow. So here's what he says. He says, listen, I do not want you to give an insult for an insult. I, I, 
break away from that, but rather give a blessing for an insult. And so I think it's a referendum on our faith. I think many Christians today are like, no way. <laughs> they punch us in the mouth, we punch them in the mouth. Right. They make fun of our guy, we make fun of his guy. We give it back to him, right? We're prophetic in, in our communication. And I think there's room for prophetic speech, but I think by and large, we need to give a blessing. And the blessing may be, not, not that we can't stick up for our doctrines or our beliefs, but the blessing may be, I'm not going to demonize you. I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to seek to find common ground rather than start with disagreement. That might be a communication blessing that we can give to people that we bitterly disagree with. Absolutely. Uh, I'm curious. I was a communications major in college many years ago, uh, but I'm curious. Obviously, when I was in college, I graduated in 1999. So when I was in college, we didn't have to talk about social media. We didn't have to talk about these other things. I'm sure you probably have to talk about it in your classes that you teach at Biola. But what would you say to the people out there um, who do use social media a little bit as a battering ram? Like I've shared on the air here that as a pastor, I get really discouraged looking a lot of times on Facebook at the people in my church and other people that I know. What might be some rules or just some challenges that you would give people as they approach specifically Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? Yeah. uh, If Aristotle were here today, he would say what is missing today that he believed was the key part of ethos, credibility, was what he called goodwill, Mm. that you approached a person and assumed the best about the person, not the worst. So I think as Christians, we need to adopt a goodwill position towards individuals. Let me give you an illustration real quick. So Mars Hill, we know Paul, when he gets to the Mars Hill discourse, despises idols. The Mm. Greek word that's used is it turns his stomach. So when he gets up, here's what he says. Men of Athens, I observe you are men of worship. Hmm. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? How in the world? We know how, what you think about those idols, Paul. And he goes, yeah, but I'm communicating to them. So I'm going to pick the commonality, which is, listen, we are both people of worship. I just feel that your worship is misdirected, but I'm hmm. going to acknowledge that you are, in fact, men of worship. I think we've missed that today. I think hmm. we need to say to our Democrat or Republican brothers and sisters, listen, I love that you care about this country. I love that you're passionate about this country. Black Lives Matter, I love the fact that you care about race. Hmm. You care about race enough to get in the streets and to protest. Now, listen, do I have issues with Black Lives Matter? Yeah, go to the website. There are certain things about Black Lives Matter that I think are not biblical. But why start there? That's the argument culture is we say, hey, let me applaud (laughs) you guys getting in the streets when I'm watching the newest Netflix miniseries that's going to dominate the next month of my life. You guys are in the street protesting, right? And so I just want to say, listen, this is our commonality is I admire your passion. I admire that race is an issue that grieves God. And I'm so glad you guys are out there reminding us Hey, get off Netflix and start dealing about race. Yeah. I love that, even though I have reserva- grave reservations about parts of uh, Black Lives Matter. I can't go there as a Christian, yeah. but don't start there. That's my point. That's really good. What are so someone's listening and they're going, yeah, I'm arguing with my brother. I argue with my cousin, whatever else. We're just constantly at odds. What might be one or two kind of steps they could take, very practical steps of Here's how you could change it from arguing 
to having a constructive conversation where you come out still unified, still family, still feeling okay with each other? Man, if you figure that out, Brian, call me. <laughs> You're the doctor. There's <laughs> my cell number. Call me. No, uh, the word you said was constant. Uh-huh. We are constantly disagreeing about this issue. You need to take a break. There's mm, something called good. a communication climate. If the climate is bad, and again, I'm talking to people in Chicago, you get bad climates, right? <laughs> yes. you, you, you can't work against the climate, right? It can't be 115 mm. heat index and you're going to go for a, a half marathon run. It's not safe. It won't work. So if you're constantly at odds with a family member, then I would step back, address the communication climate. And by that, I mean the relational level. Does that yeah. person feel respected? Uh, is there common ground you're fostering? Or is it always how you disagree with each other? Do you trust each other? Have you expressed your commitment to the relationship, even in the midst of the disagreement? We got to do climate work, Brian, in our church, family, nation, or we're just going to be in these negative communication spirals. Oh, that's really good. So your other book or one of your other books, Defending Your Marriage, uh, is it the same concept, like the same way that you're kind of talking how do we fight well, not just fight, but how do we talk well? Is it the same within a marriage or is it different when we're dealing with spouses? No, same within a marriage. The communication principles do not fluctuate. That's what's so great about them. Yeah. They can apply to family, church, nation, uh, marriage, kids. But Defending Your Marriage, Brian, is, is an important book for Christians because the byline, the subtitle is uh, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. So you better believe Satan wants to disrupt how we talk to each other, Mm. Uh, um, uh, the unity of a church, the unity of a nation. Uh, Remember when John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, I think he's talking about systems, right? Uh, And so the system that we're trying to communicate today is deeply broken. So as Christians, let's not be naive, right? 20% of everything Jesus said had to do about spiritual battle. So mm. let's add that to why are you having a hard time in your church? Man, I think Paul would say you got to be naive if you don't think spiritual battles at play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so back to the spiritual battle of marriage, what would you say to the husband and wife or wife listening right now who are like, man, I'm at, we can't ever talk to each other anymore. I feel really distant from my spouse. Uh, what would be uh, a, a word of encouragement or, or just a one step you could give them right now? Well, I would say, Brian, that Satan's oldest tactics uh, in the book, I take a look at the garden where Mm -hmm. the serpent went at work. And there's a fascinating little phrase. uh, She gave the apple to her husband who was with her. And many theologians believe Satan did not separate the two physically. He separated them psychologically. Oh, interesting. So here's what I would say to a couple. You need to reaffirm the commitment part of the communication climate, right? Even in the midst of this disagreement. You need to sit down with each other and reaffirm, hey, we're in this for life, yeah. right? I know we're going through a tough spot. I know this is hard, but I want to recommit to you, right? A perfect love casts out fear. So take the commitment part out of it. Listen, we are disagreeing, and I think you're wrong in this issue, but I want to reaffirm to you, I'm in this for life, mm. and uh, we're, we're going to get through this. Oh, that's great. That's really good. Tim Muehlhoff has been joining us talking about winsome persuasion. Uh, also, I just touched on his other book, Defending Your Marriage. And you told us before the break, as we close up here, uh, that you had a deal for our listeners. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, InterVarsity is a great publisher, and they came up with a deal. They love this book. So if you go to IV Press, 
ivpress.com, ivpress.com, and just put in uh, the code WC30, Winsome Conviction 30, but just WC30, you'll get 30% off pre-order and free shipping. Um, so go ahead and take advantage of that. Just go to intervarsitypress.com, uh, put in WC30. And I would say, Brian, just check out our website, um, winsomeconvictionnospace.com, and you'll get our podcast. You'll get uh, the books that we've written, the articles we've written, and the things that we're doing to try to bring civility back to the church and to communities. Oh, Tim, this is such an important topic. I'm really grateful, not only that you've taken the time with us, but that you've taken the time to write and kind of get this out there. I think this is so uh, needed in our churches, in our families, in our nation. So, Tim Muehlhoff, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us today. You bet, Brian. Back to praying for the lions. <laughs> they, they need it. They need it. <laughs> You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out this week. We'll be back next Monday. We're looking forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime, we're being joined by great guests, and uh, and I'm just flying solo. Dr. Uh, uh, Muehlhoff, Tim, talked to us about specifically about the church. When we live in such polarized times and such um, th- that even within the church, there's such disunity and there's such uh, angst and anger, uh, and that that it kind of mirrors the culture around us, the culture that we live around. And he said one of the only things we all can agree on is that there's no civility right now, or that there's a lack of civility. And so uh, Tim Muehlhoff, and the purpose of his book is to try to encourage, and we talked to another author last week, talking about we've got to regain uh, civility that we need to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. And we hope for that culture-wide, but it must be part of who we are as the church because the church is called to be different. The church is called to be unified. There's there Jesus praised that in John chapter 17. And so we want to ask, what does that look like within the church? Because we live in the midst of a culture, a media culture, a political culture, just a general culture of disunity, lack of civility, people just going at it. And I want to give you an example of that. And I understand that we might be giving this guy a platform and this is why he said what he said. We're going to do it anyway. Uh, You may have heard of, uh, he's well known for being a sports broadcaster, but he's no longer in sports. He's gone back into the political world. His name is Keith Oberman, uh, very liberal and uh, very anti-Donald Trump. And uh, Keith Oberman has just left ESPN to go back into the political world. And he's doing that with a YouTube show that a a daily YouTube show that's going to go at least up until the election. And he kicked it off uh, with some fireworks the other day. So I want you to hear it's going to make some of you mad. I'm going to acknowledge that from the beginning, but I want you to hear it's about a minute and a half. Here's what Keith Oberman had to say. Trump can be and must be expunged. The hate he has triggered, the Pandora's box he has opened, they will not be so easily destroyed. So, let us brace ourselves. The task is twofold. The terrorist Trump must be defeated, must be destroyed, must be devoured at the ballot box. And then he, and his enablers, and his supporters, and his collaborators, and the Mike Lees, and the William Barrs, and the Sean Hannity's, and the Mike Pence's, and the Rudy Giuliani's, and the Kyle Rittenhouse's, and the Amy Coney Barrett's, must be prosecuted and convicted and removed from our society while we try to rebuild it 
and to rebuild the world Trump has nearly destroyed by turning it over to a virus. Remember it. Even as we dream of a return to reality and safety and the country for which our forefathers died, that the fight is not just to win an election, but to win it by enough to chase, at least for a moment, Trump and the maggots off the stage and then try to clean up what they left. Remember it, even though to remember it means remembering that the fight does not end November 3rd, but in many ways will only begin that day. All right, so that's Keith Oberman, former Sports Center anchor on ESPN. Also, uh, he used to have his own show on uh, MSNBC and now this YouTube channel. And so just unbelievable rhetoric where he calls Donald Trump a terrorist. Uh, he calls Trump's followers maggots that must be not only prosecuted, but run out of our society, that will be able to rebuild our society once they are run out, and that the battle doesn't end on November 3rd, but it only begins. I want you to understand some of the language he used there. Uh, terrorist, expunged, maggots, run out of our society, need to rebuild our society, and battles and wars uh, against the other side. And this is a perfect illustration of what we've talked about with with Tim Mulehoff in the last segment, but what Ian and I talked about last week, that we no longer see people as brothers and sisters who we disagree with, but often in our culture, and this is a radical example of it, but often in our culture, we view people who don't agree with us as enemies, as the other, as people to, in the words of Keith Oberman, be run out of our society, that we'd be better off if the other side were just gone. And, and I think... Uh, it's deplorable what he just says here. It is. I, I'm, my guess is he's trying to fan some flames to get some viewers to get radio shows like ours to play it. Uh, but it's just not helpful. And if if you really do believe that, then you are part of the problem. Uh, Keith Oberman is part of the problem. It's why Mitt Romney referenced him even today as part of the problem. Um, but here's my question. There are people out there, Christ followers out there who are talking in these terms. It might not you might disagree with Keith Oberman. And so your feel is we need people like Keith Oberman to be expunged, to be run out of society. We need uh, people like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris run out of society. We need, you know, Hillary Clinton, whatever else it may be. Or you're on the other side of the aisle. You're like, yeah, no, I totally agree with Keith Oberman. We got to Donald Trump is a terrorist. He needs to be expunged. People who follow him, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, can't get near the court, all these kinds of things. And, and, and when we talk in terms within the church of people need to be canceled, run out, expunged, that is not following the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't cancel people. Jesus didn't tell people we have to run them out. If anything, it was the people who Jesus came the closest to doing this with were the religious and the self-righteous. And, and, and to, to have this language of, uh, no, no, we must get rid of. And we would be better off without these people. Uh, this is not the way of the Christ follower. And so we could just shake our head and shake our fists at people like Keith Oberman or Rush Limbaugh or whoever else, depending on your side of the aisle. But here's the question. And, and again, I reference again the interview we just did with Tim Mulehoff. Tim Mulehoff said, but, but what about those of us in the church? Are, are we treating people, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ this way who don't agree with us? about specific policies, who don't agree with us about specific candidates, who don't agree with us even about specific theology. Uh, he, he referenced uh, Peter's words to, to even disagree with gentleness 
and respect. Let me ask you, church, how are we doing with gentleness and respect? Would people look right now at evangelicalism as a whole or you, your social media, or the way you're talking personally, would people look at you and say, hey, even when that person disagrees, they do so in a biblical manner in which with gentleness and respect and that they that they look to be a bridge and they look to provide unity? Or are you uh, just kind of the, the sanitized church version of Keith Oberman here or of Rush Limbaugh or whoever else? I think we got to start asking ourselves those hard questions. And it's not about even who wins this election in November. That for the church, so much of uh, the inflection point we're at right now is how are we going to be viewed? Are people looking at us and seeing gentleness, respect, um, winsomeness, whatever else? Or are they seeing just whatever else they see out there, just a mirror image of culture? Church, I think we are at a crossroads right now. And uh, we've got to get this right. And that's why I wanted to play Keith Oberman, because I think it's an example of what we cannot be, that kind of language, but what we all too often are. We're glad that you joined us for this first hour. Coming up next hour, I'm certainly excited to be joined by Dr. Philip Riken, president of Wheaton College. He's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian, uh, my regular co-host, he is on vacation this week, getting some much-deserved rest and relaxation with his family. So I'm flying solo. Uh, and, and one of the things that we said that we like to do when one of us isn't here is to bring in as many authors pastors, ministry leaders from the area, help you as our audience get to know them a little bit better. And with that in mind, uh, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dr. Philip Riken. He is the president of my alma mater, Wheaton College. Dr. Riken, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. Uh, it's great to meet your listeners and uh, always great to talk to a fellow Weedy. There you go. There you go. So uh, Ian, my co-host, he's a Judson grad, and we've had their president on. So I said, well, we're going to get Dr. Riken on one of these days. So we're going to yeah. do this. No, so. I'm glad for that because Gene Krum does a great job at Judson and uh, really admire some of the programs they have at Judson. And we're, we're all in this together in Christ and higher education. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Dr. Reichen, I already told them that you are the eighth president of Wheaton College, but could you just introduce yourself to our audience any way that you would like? Yeah. So, um, I, Wheaton is my hometown. This is where I grew up. My, my father started teaching at Wheaton in the English department when I was one year old. Wow. He actually had, uh, a job offer at the University of Nebraska that would have offered him long-term security there. But my mother and my father felt led to accept a one-year appointment at Wheaton because they wow. admired the kingdom work of the college. Uh, Fifty years later, this is his last <laughs> semester of teaching. And, um, you know, God really honored their faith in him. Maybe just a good reminder, you know, go where God calls you and, yeah. and leave the details up to him. But this, this is where I grew up. I went to school here like you did, studied English and philosophy. And then for about 25 years, uh, my wife Lisa and I and our family were in Philadelphia for ministry and school, then in England for school mm. primarily, and also some ministry, and then back in Philadelphia. We lived in downtown Philadelphia for 15 years before wow. I started at Wheaton in 2010. So we've got 
five kids. I'm now a grandparent as well, so that's new for us. Um, that that's uh, that's that's me in that's a great. nutshell. So I've always been curious. So you did undergrad at Wheaton. You live there. So when I go back to Wheaton and, and I'm on campus and I hear the bells ringing, I immediately think like, oh, I'm like 20 years old on campus. I'm a junior again. Like it immediately sends me back. Now being on campus and being the president, do you just have those crazy moments like, oh, my gosh, uh, I feel like I'm still an undergrad and I'm the president of the college. Does that ever happen to you yeah, as you're walking occasionally. campus? Occasionally. So there's certainly things that happen that, that you know, really bring back a strong memory. They're probably certain smells that do that. You know how <laughs> yeah. smell works with memory. Well, That's for right. those who haven't been in the Wheaton community before, we have a, a very tall steeple on Edmund Chapel that has beautiful chimes mm-hmm. playing hymns and, and other Christian music. And when I, I loved those chimes when I was a little kid. Um, could hear them, you know, we lived close enough, I could hear them kind of ringing out over this part of Wheaton. And, um, you know, when I was a little boy, I said to the Lord, um, I, I love Wheaton College. The answer for me for Wheaton is always yes. Um, I remember, you know, being out one day and praying that kind of prayer. So now to be in a place where I hear those chimes every day, hear them mm-hmm. when I'm at home in the evening, uh, definitely they're very strong memories associated for me. The other thing is, this is where I met my wife, Lisa. This is where mm-hmm. we you know, conducted our courtship. So um, there are a lot of romantic memories as well as childhood and educational memories. Uh, that is my life story as well. I didn't grow up in Wheaton, but I met my wife at Wheaton and many of our family do. So her, Carrie and I will occasionally go walk through campus. And it's again, it brings back all sorts of memories. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering now on campus, uh, just as we're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, what is Wheaton doing right now? Like if people... what maybe paint a picture for what's happening at the college right now in the midst of the pandemic. And then I'm curious, what's it like been like for you to lead through a time like this? Yeah. So those are, I mean, we could spend all the the rest Uh of the evening talking about those questions, Brian. (laughs) They're great questions though. You know, um, things are very, very different on campus this fall. I have to say today specifically is just one of the most beautiful days of the year. Yesterday was too. Um, And just the beautiful trees, the beautiful sky, and that's so familiar if you live in this part of the country, how beautiful the fall is. It falls always beautiful on campus. But it's so different this year because um, we are wearing masks in a lot of mm-hmm. uh, social venues, including the Wheaton College classroom. We are not able to gather our entire student body of 2,000 students for worship three times a week the way we usually would for chapel. Um, there, there are just a lot of changes. A bit really visible one around campus is you see lots of circles of Adirondack chairs with hmm. uh, little fire pits in the middle, particularly in the evening or early in the morning. Even you'll see students out for Bible study and things. We've become much more an outdoor community because it's wow. safer for us to be outdoors. You're sitting at a proper distance outdoors. You don't need to be masked and so forth. So um, it's heavily adapted. But we're also seeing a lot of signs of God's grace. And I, I could talk about a lot of these, but I'll, I'll just mention one that I think illustrates the point. My, my son is a sophomore here. I saw him with his camp chair and some food from the dining hall in a little box and his backpack. And I s- happened to bump into him. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to, I'm going to book group. And I said, going to book group? When, when did you start being in a book group? I've never known him to be in a book group before. And he said, um, yeah. It's really fun. 
<laughs> and he said, I said, well, what's what, who is it? What's the book group? He said, it's, it's the guys from the hockey team. Now wow. our club hockey team is not skating this semester. It's a contact mm-hmm. sport. We don't have the testing mechanism that we would need. It's just, we're not playing hockey this semester, but the hockey guys are getting together once a week on our beautiful front campus around a campfire. And they are reading a book together and they are talking about what it means to be a man of God. Oh, that's awesome. And I heard him say that, and I and I knew knew right then this is not a wasted season in the economy mm. of God. And mm. I, Brian, I just really encourage the people of God in this season to be looking for those opportunities to see where God is at work in a way He could not be at work in the same way if we weren't going through the trials that we're going through. Mm. And I think one of the things that will encourage our spirit for what is a very long trial with a long road ahead. With coronavirus and everything else that's going on in the United States right now and in the world, um, seeing signs of God's goodness and faithfulness will encourage us to persevere. Yeah, yeah. That's really a really helpful word for pastors, for everybody. I'm wondering, and this is probably the unanswerable question, and this is my last coronavirus question. And again, I'm, I'm preface it by saying it might be unanswerable, but I ask it anyway. What will bring it back to normal? What are the benchmarks you guys are looking for? What what needs to happen to where some of it goes back to quote unquote normal? Yeah, so we you know we've been so blessed on our campus and other campuses have been as well, including a lot of Christian colleges. Very low incidence of COVID nineteen. Very strong mm-hmm. cooperation from students as well as faculty and staff. So we've we have really had what we wanted. We wanted a COVID safe, thunder strong campus this fall. We've mm-hmm. seen that so mm-hmm. far. The, the walkout from this, it's not going to be abrupt. It's going to be gradual. And as many difficult decisions as we have had to make coming into the coronavirus, how to adapt to it, what needs to change, what, what, what should, should, does not, shouldn't change, we're going to have just as many questions. And I, I don't know whether that we're going to be wrestling with those questions in February or April, but you know the vaccine is probably going to be a slow rollout. The situation will gradually improve. So I, I think we're in this for kind of a long haul, and mm-hmm. um, changes will be gradual or quite a while, I believe. Um, so this is a long-term leadership challenge for Christian leaders. It's not a short-term challenge. That's great. That other voice you hear is Dr. Philip Reichen. He is the eighth president of Wheaton College, and we're thrilled to have him joining us here on The Common Good. He's going to stay with us for a couple more segments here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today on just a gorgeous Tuesday afternoon here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, We are thrilled to be joined for a second segment uh, by Dr. Philip Reichen. He is the eighth president of Wheaton College and uh, very generous with his time uh, joining us today. Uh, Dr. Reichen, let me ask you this question. I have a junior in high school. You said you've got kids who are in college, not yet in college. I have a junior in high school, my oldest. And so we're just starting to walk into this kind of daunting college discussion right now. And uh, so my question for you is this, what would you say to somebody like me who's got a kid going, what's the value, in your opinion, of a liberal arts, private Christian college education? Yeah, so great question, Brian. Thanks for tossing me that softball, because that's something I love to talk about. So when you say liberal arts, you're really referring to a very specific kind of education, not not theologically liberal, not politically Mm -hmm. liberal, but liberal in the sense of that which brings freedom. Liberal arts education started with the ancient Greeks, 
But early on in cities like Alexandria and Antioch, where the church was flourishing, Christian people in the early church said, if we could bring that kind of education under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we would be able to produce not just leaders for a free society, but leaders for the kingdom of God. So there is now you know, virtually a 2,000-year history of Christian people saying, we want our most gifted young people to study art and music and philosophy. We want them to learn how to write. We want to teach them how to argue. We want, want them to explore the natural world. We want to give them a breadth. We want mathematical learning. We want to give them a breadth of understanding and so that they can be the the kingdom workers, the kingdom citizens, the fathers and mothers, the husbands and wives, the neighbors, the community members that God is calling them to become, really for the common good, for, mm-hmm. for, as we say at Wheaton, for building the church and benefiting society. Now, I happen, you know, there are 4,000 some colleges and universities in the United States. I, I can't possibly tell you which school is the best school for each individual person. We are mm-hmm. so blessed in this country to have so many great educational uh, options. The thing that, that I would say, and it, you know, we've got five children, four of them, two of them have graduated from Wheaton, two of them are attending Wheaton. I've got a high school student as well. We encourage them to explore broadly with both secular and Christ-centered schools. Hmm. But they came to the conclusion that I think was the right conclusion for them is that the best way for them to be kingdom leaders for the long term was to invest more deeply in Christ-centered education complete a work of moral formation and theological education that had already begun and really solidify that. And very importantly, be with a peer group that would challenge them to follow Christ and be a resource for them over the course of a lifetime. And uh, Wheaton College is definitely a campus where people develop lifelong relationships. I was just with a group of alumni for our virtual homecoming. We had over 500 people from all over the world with us for homecoming. and. you know, one person was just commenting, I've had other friends in life. I just have never had the caliber of friends that have stayed with me for the long haul that I that I have from my Wheaton experience. Um, so those are those are a few of, you know, a few of many reasons why I think this is a great kind of, of education. And I think some of our best students in the Christian community really ought to be going to Christ-centered liberal arts schools. Yeah. I can affirm that some of my best friends are for, lived with me on Traber 3 for two years and uh, still all these years later are good friends. As I said, now we're on the other end of it trying to, you know, figure this out with our daughter who's in high school right now. And and so with that in mind, I'm just curious, uh, the thought process, and if you have any concern that there's coming a point when the cost of college education is just too great, right? We hear that all the time about loans and read an article earlier today about Gordon and Houghton making some changes in their tuition structure. Uh, how do you guys go about having those discussions? And is that a concern for you guys at, at a leadership level right now? Yeah. So, you know, that, that is a big concern that people have, um, particularly because, um, you know, a residential education is a costly kind of education to provide. Right. Just a couple of things I, I like to point out. One is, if you look at the data on the long-term earning power of people that get a first-rate college education, over the long term, there just continues to be no question that if only you were looking at it only in economic terms, which I don't think is the way to look at a, at a Christ-centered education, um, it would uh, it would demonstrate its value um, over the long term. I will also say this, people don't realize this because you do hear a lot about the cost of college. Over the last decade, the net cost of college 
what people actually pay for college, has been declining with respect to inflation, not increasing. Wow. That's very surprising because that's not what you hear in the media. The reason for that is people continue to give very generously to scholarship support at Christ-centered institutions. And we absolutely are doing everything we can to keep costs low. Mm -hmm. Um, And so realize at most schools, this is definitely true at, at Wheaton with the sort of endowment resources we have, you will get, even if you pay the full price, quote unquote, you'll get a much better education than you're, than you're paying for because colleges are investing themselves in the um, education that, that students receive. A couple of things I really encourage people to do in the college search and selection process. First of all, just really pray and leave the decision in God's hands. That's, that's fundamental spiritually. Secondly, I encourage, even in this COVID season, get onto the campuses of the schools you're really thinking about. That's where I think the Lord really works. Ordinarily, what I say, you can't do it this year, perhaps, certainly not right now. There is no substitute for spending a night in the dorm of any college that you're really thinking about seriously. What you will experience at a school like a Wheaton College is so different from what happens at a state school or a public institution. Um, Parents should be a lot better informed about what does happen. I'll just say that. Um, The other thing is don't don't, uh, make a decision prematurely about whether a school is the right school or wrong school simply on what you think will be the cost of school because there is such generous scholarship scholarship aid available at so many schools. Wheaton, certainly that's the case. Um, that you won't know until you go through the process actually how affordable um, the school will be. Another thing, just to encourage people on Christian higher education specifically, and that is um, the ability of students to repay their college loans if they have loans. And, you know, at Wheaton, about half of our students graduate without any debt at all. Half of our students have some loans to pay off. Wheaton would be particularly high, but over 99% of our graduates are fully up to date with paying off their loans. It's a much higher number than you see for public education or that you see for other kinds of private schools. Um, there, there are objective reasons to think that the value of a Christ-centered higher education is very high. And those are mm-hmm. a few of the data points I like to make sure people understand. That's really helpful. Uh, as we close out this segment, uh, let me ask you a question that's near and dear to not just my heart, but my son's heart. I, I raised a son right now who is obsessed with Wheaton Athletics. So he was disappointed the football season couldn't happen. He understood why. Uh, but how is that conversation about sports going on a college level, specifically on a D3 level right now? You got basketball coming up, even into next year with football. What is that conversation? How are you guys navigating that on a D3 athletic level? Yeah, specific to COVID or more broadly than yeah. that? No COVID, like, yeah. are they even going to happen? How yeah, do you make so that I don't know for sure. So we're having a very good experience so far with practice, including for contact sports, because we're doing sufficient testing to make it a safe environment. So, um, you know, of course, what you really want to do is compete. But I heard one of our football coaches say, you know, they decided to cancel practice and have a longer worship time recently. Just one of the best experiences he's had in coaching. And so there, there are gains as well as losses. We still yeah. hope to have competition in the winter and spring, but we don't know for certain yet whether that'll happen. I'm, I'm quite hopeful that, you know, next year, mm-hmm. our next school year, we will have a full slate of athletic competition. I'm modestly optimistic we will have some conference play in the spring, but we'll have to wait and see. 
Great. Great. Well, that's Dr. Philip Reichen. He is the president of Wheaton College, being very generous with his time. He's going to stay with us for one more segment uh, as we talk about all sorts of things uh, about the college, but also uh, his pastoral perspective coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Dr. Reichen, we're so thrilled that you've joined us and that you uh, continue to join us. I wanted to ask you this. Uh, you mentioned earlier that before being the president of Wheaton, you were uh, you were a pastor. You were a minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'm just curious, what do you miss the most about leading in the local church? Yeah, so it's a. I like the way you phrased that, Brian, because I, I made it clear even in the um, just exploration process of possibly coming to Wheaton, the only kind of college president I could be, is somebody who views a college presidency as a form of of ministry, gospel ministry, mm-hmm. and that would have been very common at most colleges in the United States in the 19th century, and has become you know much less common. But I, am, but I am not serving in the same pastoral role in the local church. Uh, we certainly miss Philadelphia. We love living in downtown Philadelphia, love urban environments, love all the complexity and challenges of life in a diverse city. Um, so there are just kind of on a personal level, how you live um, a life in ministry, it, it's, it's somewhat different. One of the bi- things that I m- miss the most is uh, ministry to children and um you know, I, I taught children weekly on Sunday mornings at our church in Philadelphia, and there's just a special bond. There can be, there often is, between a pastor and the children of a church. And there's just there's nothing on a college campus that quite um, replaces that. There, there are some gains as well as losses, though. One of the big gains for me in making that transition was the ability to sit with my entire family for worship on Sunday mm-hmm. mornings, which I hadn't done regularly, you know, ever really. So, um, you know, there are each season of life comes with, you know, blessings and also challenges, you know, Lord willing, at some point we will return to local church ministry that that would be, you know, our expectation and probably hope. Um, But, um, and then the other thing, Brian, and, and you'll understand this as a pastor. So I, you know, I do plenty of teaching and preaching. I mean, every right. week I'm opening my Bible and preaching and teaching in some context or another. Um, you know, I've preached probably four times in the last seven days. Um, <laughs> but it's different preaching to the same congregation week in right. and week out and specifically working your way through a book of the Bible, which is the kind of teaching that I like to do. I still do that to some degree, but it's usually spread out more. And there's just something about that week in, week out, day in, day out rhythm. I'm really wired for that. And um, I'm, I miss that. Yeah. If you were in that setting right now, Ian and I obviously as both pastors have been talking a lot about this. What, would, what do you think you'd be telling your congregation now three weeks out from an election? What would you want them to be knowing and to be thinking about in this kind of really contentious time as we get closer to this election? What would you be saying to your church right now? Yeah, so it's a great question. Of course, something we're thinking about on a college campus yeah. as well. It would depend somewhat on the tone and tenor of my congregation's engagement with political issues. Um, And so, you know, in pastoral ministry, you're always thinking about application to your particular congregation. I will say um, I would be reminding my congregation of the fundamental duty of every believer to pray for those who are in authority 
And I think we can extend that to the whole electoral process, which is something that our authorities have put into place for leadership and a a mechanism that God uses in his sovereignty to appoint our leaders. So a stance of of prayer fundamentally. Um, I would really be encouraging um, people in (laughs) being careful of sins of attitude, of judgment, and of speech. Um, so we, it's a very polarized society. Um, you know, we feel very strongly many times about our political convictions. A lot of that gets expressed in social media in ways that are not carefully thought out, that do not reflect the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, you know, I'd be talking about themes from the book of James, for example, uh, quick to listen, (laughs) slow to speak. Yeah slow to become angry. Well, those are those, that's a nice three-point message right there. <laughs> um, the other thing I will I will say and you know I, I don't know that I would be preaching about this but it's a it's a perspective that I think is important. Faithful believers in Jesus Christ typically have biblical reasons for the political views that they hold. Hmm. It becomes easy then to attach the same degree of certainty and authority to some of those political conclusions as you would have for the biblical principles themselves. Yeah. And I think that is typically a mistake. Because although the Bible has, um, for example, a clear pro-life ethic, it does not tell you specifically which whether it's better to pass legislation that is proposing to ban abortion outright, even if that legislation has no possibility of passing, or if it's better to invest your time and effort in legislation that will minimize or mitigate some of the damages of abortion as the only thing that you can accomplish right now, and it is not the ultimate good, it does not fully Mm -hmm. honor the biblical pro-life principle, I'm just using that as an illustration of mm-hmm. a discussion that principled Christians may disagree about political strategies and about some political outcomes, even if they believe in the same biblical principle at the core of That's things. Right. And it's easy for us to elevate um, you know, our political convictions, some of them, and political strategies and political candidates even to that place of sort of absolute authority that we should only mm-hmm. get to fundamental biblical principles. And there are lots of matters of judgment in public life that are that are judgment calls um, that are not the same as absolute biblical principles. And Christians mm-hmm. sometimes have trouble navigating that difference. Yeah, that's well put. That's well put. I'm curious, as you're around college students, that college, you have college students as children, like you said, but also as you're on a college campus, what do you most enjoy about this generation, this kind of the college student generation? And also what might, what are your concerns for that generation? Yeah. So, I mean, I love college students. I grew up with a lot of college students in our home. There's a sense in which I've got a lifelong love affair with college students. Um, (laughs) I love the energy I love the sense that there is a future that is open-ended that you can pursue. I love the wrestling with fundamental questions of calling and identity, which is just, I mean, that's kind of what you do when you're 18 to 22 year, right. two years old. You can you go back and you read Augustine, and he's wrestling with the same questions of what should I do with my life, and 
what is the place of God in my life and how should I handle my temptations and how should I handle approach my friendships? I mean, these, these are just the questions that young people are wrestling with. Um, I also love uh, just the passion, the passion for worship, the passion for service, the passion for making a difference in the world. There's just tremendous passion and energy on a campus like this one. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, some of my concerns are the world that our students are entering into. Uh, it's not even so much where they are and, and what they're, you know, particularly thinking through, but just um, the, the political polarization, mm -hmm. the uh, racial injustice and unrest, the just the devastating consequences we're facing right now of disease and of floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and things that have you know every anything that happens in the united states it touches wheaton college families because our students come from all over this is a national college so just all of the things that they're facing i'm, I'm burdened for them um about those issues um you know a concern i have with our younger generation is because they are perpetually concerned that something a little better is going to come along, it's harder for them to make the commitment that actually leads to the greatest blessing. And when you make a commitment, even a simple commitment, like what you're going to do with a friend on Friday night, um, yeah, maybe something you wish you had chosen instead does come along, but God's blessing is being committed to that choice that you made and to the friends that are involved. Um, and I think that's a greater struggle probably for the current generation. I also just think, I mean, we could talk about this whole evening as well. <laughs> I just think um, the temptations and limitations of being in a virtual reality so often, yeah. we are designed for embodied experiences, face-to-face, body-with-body. And we live in a culture, particularly during COVID, but all the time, that does not really focus on that. I think it's harder to live a balanced, wholesome, healthy, total Christian life as a result. Absolutely. I'm grateful. Thank you for those words. Uh, with the last minute or so we have left, uh, we always like to end our interviews with people. And we're so grateful for the amount of time you've given us. Uh, acknowledging, you know, as a pastor, as a, someone who thinks in this way, um, there's a lot of people out there right now struggling. That We read all the stats about despair, about hopelessness both for Christ followers and non-Christ followers. With the last minute we have, could you just speak to those people out there right now who are feeling just a high level of despair and hopelessness? Yeah, so, if, you know, Brian, if ever there was a year to feel some of those feelings, um, this has just been a really tough year. I was talking about, with my wife yesterday and saying, you know, Thanksgiving is going to be something special this year because <laughs> we've got so many challenges just to really focus on the things that we can be thankful for. I would just say, if you don't have a living personal relationship with Jesus Christ, could it be that that's really what's missing from your life? We, we would just love for you to investigate that, particularly through reading the Bible. Uh, you may come to a living relationship with Jesus that will change your life in a way you, you never dreamed possible. And just for those you know who know Christ and are discouraged, um, right now. I just think realizing you're in the middle of the story, it, this isn't the end of the story. Uh, there is hope, there is blessing, there is glory, there is resurrection power, uh, there is beauty in your future. And uh, God is calling you today to persevere, to walk with him, to turn, with, turn to him in prayer. And um, just realize you're in the middle of a story that has an amazingly good ending. And this is the time to exercise courage and faith in, in the goodness of God.
Amen. Well, Dr. Reichen, as an alumnus of the college, I wanted you to know we're thankful for you and all that you're doing. We're praying for you guys. I know it's a weird year. And so uh, we're really grateful for the amount of time you've given us. Again, that's Dr. Philip Reichen, the eighth president of Wheaton College. Dr. Reichen, thanks so much for giving us the time today. Thank you. Good to stand with you on some common ground today, Brian. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is taking a much-deserved break this week. He'll be back next Monday. Uh, in the meantime, we're having lots of great guests this week, so you don't just have to listen to me talk. We're having lots of great guests, uh, and that was definitely the case today, uh, as in the first hour, we were able to be joined by Tim Muehlhoff, author of a great book called Winsome Persuasion. Uh, and then for the last three segments, joined by the eighth president of Wheaton College, Dr. Philip Reichen. What an enjoyable experience and a conversation that was. As we close out the show today, I just wanted to do so. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it is one of the most fascinating stories. So just the other day, uh, Apple hit a $1 trillion market cap. And so just try to get your mind around that. Apple uh, is so involved in so many of our lives, right? Through the technology that we use uh, and that we are so uh, accustomed to. So Apple uh, hit a historic $1 million, uh, $1 trillion market cap value on, uh, this was last Thursday, I believe, becoming the first publicly traded US company to ever reach that milestone. Again, just try to take that in. It said the stock briefly hit the $207.05 per share price that was needed to bring Apple to the $1 trillion mark uh, before retreating. And so it says, I think uh, one of these analysts said, I think it just speaks to just how powerful the Apple ecosystem has become over the last few decades. This is not the end that'll keep going. So here's the story. Why are we bringing this up? Here's the story. Owning 10% of Apple right now sounds like a dream. But one man actually knows what it's like to watch that opportunity slip away. That man's name is Ronald Wayne, the little known third co-founder of Apple. See, Wayne joined Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, who were 21 and 25 at the time, to provide the company with, quote, quote, adult supervision and to oversee mechanical engineering and documentation in exchange for a 10 percent stake in the business. On April 1st, 1976, Wayne sat down at his typewriter and drew up an agreement outlining each man's responsibilities, making his role with Apple official. He also drew the company's first logo, which was used for less than a year before being replaced by the symbol that you know today for Apple. Wayne rapidly, though, grew concerned that any debts incurred by the business would fall on him personally. Jobs had taken out $15,000 loans so he could buy supplies to fulfill Apple's first uh, contract. Uh, with a a store that had ordered 100 computers. Uh, That store was called The Bite Shop. But The Bite Shop was known for failing to pay its bills, and Wayne worried that Apple wouldn't be able to recoup the money. So while both Jobs and Wozniak were young and broke, Wayne had assets, including a house, and feared that the financial burden would fall on him if the deal went south. So after spending a mere 10 days with Wozniak and Jobs, Wayne had his name taken off the contract and sold his 10% shares back to his co-founders for $800. 
Wayne's decision to leave the startup cost him big. Here's the here it is, people. You ready for this? Today, a 10% stake in Apple would be worth more than 95 billion. That's a B billion dollars. That kind of fortune would make Wayne one of the richest people in the world. Amazingly, Wayne says he doesn't regret his decision, mostly because he knows how he wouldn't have thrived at Apple. He says, I would wind up in the documentation department shuffling papers uh, for the next 20 years, he said. Wayne felt out of place, like he was standing in the shadow of intellectual giants. He was 40, and these kids, he says, were in their 20s. They were whirlwinds. Uh, I probably would have round up, he says, the richest man in the cemetery. It doesn't end there, though. The one thing he does regret, regret, <laughs> regret, however, stems from his time with Apple. Wayne kept his original contract from 1976 for years. Then in the early 90s, he sold that contract for $500. He said it was sitting in my file cabinet. What am I going to do with it? He sold it. Well, according to Filthy Rich Guide in 2011, that same contract that he sold for $500 sold at auction for $1.59 million. So Wayne again missed his opportunity at riches. Why do I bring up this story? Uh, a, uh, it, I find it just fascinating. But B, you know what? There's a lot of us out there that make bad decisions in our life where we're like, I have these deep regrets. How did I miss that opportunity? How did I make that choice? And you've got a choice in those. You can move on. You can kind of get through it. You can uh, just go, well, uh, all I can worry about is tomorrow and today, or you can live in the regret and never move past. Uh, Ronald Wayne, uh, he gave up riches and money unknowingly that none of us will ever have a chance to even have or give up in the first place. But he seems to have kept a little bit of perspective during the course of his life. I really wanted to read that because I think it's just fascinating. It is unbelievable. The amazing things that happen. How, think about how much life changes with one decision. Uh, and that's the life we live. And you can live in regret or you could just keep moving on with the knowledge you have and just keep going. Well, it's been a great day today here on The Common Good. Again, if you missed the interviews with Tim Mulhoff or with Dr. Philip Riken, go find those at our podcast. We're really glad that you joined us. Join us again tomorrow. We've got some more great guests and we're excited to be together. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us. You have been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.